Uh, just to sort of begin with ministry activity since I've left College Hill, perhaps the best way to communicate would be just describe what I was doing on Monday. Um, I spent most of the day at Wyoming Presbyterian Church where I've been involved in helping the spiritual leadership and development of the session there and uh, those who are responsible to lead the church. And I left uh, uh, Wyoming Presbyterian Church to go over to the first hour of the session meeting at Madeira Silverwood Presbyterian Church where I sort of have the title there of equipping pastor and I'm working there a couple of days a week to set up small group discipling systems with that church. And then I left the session meeting to go over to Northminster Presbyterian Church and meet with the adult ed committee there to talk about a new series that they've kicked off in small groups and uh, exploring the various strengths that God has given to people and ways to apply that in the context of the church. And during the day, um, while I was uh, spending most of my time at Wyoming Presbyterian Church, I received a phone call from Westwood First Presbyterian Church that wants to set up a series and a process of discipling for their congregation and uh, emailed material to uh, Crestview Presbyterian Church for an adult ed class and issues that they were dealing with. So, um, which is to say, I I am um, committed to and excited and involved in setting up systems of spiritual development in congregations or congregational discipleship. A particular name for the ministry that I am working with, and it's called Connections. And if you will take out this piece of paper that you received, you are beginning a six-week series in this church dealing with the ministry that I've been developing. And uh, this, uh, you're, you're beginning a six-week series on spiritual pathways. Now, this is not just about doing small group Bible study, but about changing and transformation and refreshment and renewal of an entire congregation. Um, my experience is that in mainline churches that have small groups, many of them have lost their vision and are becoming basically fellowship communities of people who enjoy being with one another but have lost the other dimensions and dynamics uh, that can shape in a congregation through small groups. In most mainline traditional congregations, small groups basically are insignificant. There's a few of them. They're not really massively penetrating the entire congregation. They are peripheral. They're considered optional, as most ministries of the church take place just fine without small groups, thank you. Small groups in most mainline churches are not strategic. They're not tied into the vision and direction of the session, nor are they tied into the main points that the pastor is preaching. In many churches, small groups are primarily inaccessible. You can't find out when they meet, where they meet, or how to get into them. Uh, And in most mainline small groups um, that do exist are pretty inward. They're self-focused on personal needs and have basically settled into fellowship and support groups. The vision of the Ministry of Connections is that small groups would become significant, integral, strategic, sustainable, and accessible. And that is that 50% of an entire congregation, two to three times a year, would all be engaged together in the same Bible study. So it becomes extremely significant, becomes integral as small groups study what the pastors are preaching on. So that you study during the week and then you can hear what the pastor has to say, or the pastor preaches on it and then you can take the material home and read it during the week. And if you really want to grow and get involved, 
you get meet with a group of eight or ten other folks who are serious as well and who are studying the passage and the combination of hearing it preached on, personal study, and talking about it in small groups begins to do something in your heart in terms of the penetration of biblical truth. And the idea is to create small groups two to three times a year in which everybody's engaged in and it makes small groups accessible. Everybody knows their small groups. Everybody knows that they're meeting and everybody is encouraged to get involved. And in the process of doing small groups, there's a vision to move from outreach as merely sort of giving your testimony and getting somebody to make a decision to what I call missional hospitality. And that is every small group makes a commitment to put together some sort of hospitality event in which people who are outside the church and outside the fellowship are invited to experience Christian community, a barbecue, a picnic, a meal. And, and not where there is an attempt necessarily at the small group to get a conversion, but just to get a taste of what it's like to be in the fellowship with other believers. And when that happens, small groups become reinflated from being merely support groups and fellowship groups to being groups engaged in personal, spiritual, and congregational-wide transformation. And that's sort of the vision that possesses me and that I'm very excited about. We're in the process of trying to establish a national ministry, and we're starting with a number of churches here in Cincinnati, some churches in North Carolina, and a few churches in the northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. So that's the, that's the overall thing of what I'm engaged in, ministry that I'm engaged in since the Lord has called me on from College Hill Presbyterian Church. Now I'd like to share with you a little bit about just what's going on in me. It was about two years ago this summer. We were down in Florida at a high school reunion, and uh, I slipped away to go to a gym to do a workout. Strangest thing in the world. While I was actually laying on the bench doing some bench presses, I heard a voice, and basically the voice said, well, it's time we took care of your body and it's time we took care of your boys. Hmm, what does that mean? You know, sometimes when you hear these voices, it's indigestion or, you know, bad dreams or something. You never know whether this is from the Lord or not. So I was rather curious, you know, what is this dealing with your... Well, I knew what dealing with my body was. I needed to get in shape and I was in the process of doing that. And I, We came back from Florida and we're home... And about a month after we got back, our middle son, Chris, who was in his late 20s, came to us and said, Mom and Dad, I am hooked on heroin, and I need help. So I knew what that voice was saying when it's time we took care of your boys. And uh, something inside me just died. Anything but heroin. Anything but heroin. And, um, but I had hope because the Lord had said, it's time we took care of this. And so that began a process of um, two years now of being engaged with Chris as uh, he, he got off of it once and became re-addicted again and then went through uh, the cat house here in Cincinnati, which is a rehabilitation place for 30 days, and then went to a halfway house and became involved in Narcotics Anonymous and began the process of cleaning up his life. Somewhere along the way, it's important that you break the sort of social connections that you have. And Chris was doing so well, he felt like he needed to get out of the city and establish and move on and move to another place. So he's been in Seattle now for almost a year. And he's had his ups and downs, but as far as we know, he's not gotten back on, on drugs. And about three months ago, he had a very significant encounter with the Holy Spirit. 
And um, I got some lyrics with him from this past week that I really wanted to share with you, but he said they're not yet ready for prime time. So I couldn't. But he's writing music, and he's talking about how doubtful he'd been and how testing he'd been, and he was ready now to engage in the spiritual battles of life, and he'd come to believe. So um, we are just so grateful. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, um, that, that, that word, it's time we dealt with your boys. You know, the Lord gave us a promise, and we held on to that in some very dark, painful times. And, and as, uh, as you might imagine, one of the things that I say in these, uh, we went to the, um, you know, we were going to 12-step programs as well. And one of the things I say is, you know, you are not responsible for the choices of your loved ones. You know, you didn't cause this. And well, well, it's true. We weren't responsible. I, I had a sense that there was some fruit in my heart that was bearing life in Chris's. And I, I had some very serious conversations with the Lord. And uh, at one point I was having a quiet time. And all of a sudden I had this incredibly graphic image of sitting on the front porch of a house overlooking a very sort of dramatic seascape of uh, being on a cliff and down below there were waves and breakers and it was kind of um, dark and dreary and ominous clouds in the distance. And I'm sitting on the porch of this very large house. And I'm very aware that I'm on the porch and I'm on the outside of the house and I don't want to be inside that house. And uh, it just it became clear that that house was my heart. And I was on the porch. I was sitting on the outside. And I knew it was time to turn around and go inside. So I walked inside. Oh, my gosh. There were cobwebs everywhere. And, and there was howling going on. It was haunted. There were voices and shouting. And, 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 and it was really dark. And I got the point right away. There's a difference between what folks and I show outside of me and what's going on inside of me. And that's called hypocrisy, putting a face on it. And the Lord really was confronting me with that. So I thought, well, okay, uh, uh, it's time to get some light in here. So I opened the shutters. And some light gets in, but it's still really dark. So, all right, if we're going to get some light in here, we're going to have to tear the siding off of this place. So I start tearing the siding off of this large house. And I get the siding off, and... I discovered that the beams, uh, and there's no, there's no uh, sheetrock on the walls. It's all barren, and they're beams, and they're, they're black, and they're charred. And I thought, what is this? I've heard of broken heart, but I don't know if I've heard of a blackened heart. I've heard of a black heart, but I hope I don't have a black heart, Lord. Ugh. So, you know, I, I get it. I'm looking around at this, this, this place, and I've got all the siding off, and it starts to rain. Oh, thanks a lot, Lord. <laughs> you know, here I am opening up myself, and I expose myself to the elements, and what is it does? It rains on me. So uh, <clears throat> I wasn't appreciative of that. I told the Lord so. Well, as the, as the drama uh, continued a couple of months later, I was having a quiet time, waking up, of course, in the middle of the night a lot. So about 4 o'clock, and I got to the point where I, okay, okay, so I get up and I light a candle and I read the scripture and I do the morning office at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'm sitting there in a sense of reading the scripture and listening to the Lord, and Again, I was spoken to, a little quiet voice that just said, you are very angry and bitter. Moi? I'm this nice, kind-hearted guy who's just kind of got a good word for me? So, um, I, I, said, so I said, okay, Lord, show me. Ugh. Well, um, at that point, the calluses began to come off. And I realized I needed help. I went to a counselor. 
and discovered that there were relationships going back to my adolescence that I was, folks, I was really angry at for some deep pain that I was in pretty strong denial of. I wouldn't even admit the pain, much, much less admit the anger. And, and, and we got to the root of that. And then, you know, it struck me that the kind of anger that I had was kind of suppressed and smoldering. It wasn't raging. And, and what are the kind of fires that uh, they have that turn things into charcoal, but these kind of quiet fires that burn deep? My heart was blackened because of the rain. And how do you handle fire? You put water on it. And all of a sudden, I discovered why the Lord had sent the rain. I opened my heart up, and he did what was necessary to deal with the anger. So again, a very clear sense that the Lord was involved in my heart. And I think probably sorrow that anger has infected Chris. I think it's worn some fruit in his life that I had to face. Well, in this process of sort of facing my heart, Again, another quiet time. I have this image of a large, huge warehouse, and Jesus is in the door knocking, and I have this little door, and then all of a sudden he's inside and comes into this warehouse, and he and I are in it, and there's nothing inside. It's empty. It's unfurnished. Oh, Lord, is this my heart? Huge and unfinished? Nothing inside? Haven't I let anything inside over the years? And then the image shifted again. And all of a sudden, I'm in this little English pub with these sort of huge rafters overhead. And there's a fireplace in the fire. And Jesus is on one side of the table with a mug in his hand, and I'm on the other side of the table. And we have a great conversation. And all of a sudden, again, that sense of emptiness and anger and estrangement went away as I experienced the intimacy of Jesus in the heart. And I've come then in fresh new ways to believe that the experience of the Christian life is to have a healthy heart that bears good fruit. And that comes because Jesus is indwelling in our hearts. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, about the glorious mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And his prayer for all Christians was that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, this is not new news to most of us in the room, the importance of Jesus coming into our heart. In fact, when I was first a believer, when I became a believer as a college student, someone led me in a prayer from Revelation 3.20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I'd done that. I'd invited Jesus into my heart. As I reflected on this verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock, there was something very unsettling to me about it. Actually, it's written to a church, not to non-Christians. And the question you think about is, how is Jesus standing on the outside of the church? I mean, these people in this church invited Jesus into their hearts at some point, and they surrendered to him. And so as I pondered this verse more, it dawned on me that it's possible in the midst of living a Christian life, life for Christ to, clo- to close Christ out of our hearts. And this verse is not an evangelism verse. It's a revival verse. And I am convinced that it is possible, and I experience this, and I think as I look around I see it, it's possible to have begun the Christian life and to walk 20 or 30 years in ministry and to be vital as a church and somewhere along the way, Jesus gets displaced from being in the center of our being 
to being on the outside of our hearts and on the outside of the church. And I think the history of the church is a record of this issue of the relationship of the indwelling of Christ in the church and in our hearts. And there's no guarantee that because we started off there, we're going to end up there. And that's why Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke. And I can testify to a life of rebuke these past couple of years as the Lord has shown his love for me by very significant and very direct confrontation. I believe that if we are to stay vital and alive, we need to create and cultivate pathways that keep our hearts open and accessible to Jesus Christ. Pathways to get Jesus back into the heart. Pathways to meet with Jesus in the heart. Pathways to allow Jesus to overflow and to bear his fruit in our lives. Now, over the next six weeks, you're going to be engaged in a study of spiritual pathways. Now, it's possible just to see these as spiritual disciplines, as tasks that you do. Or it's possible to see these as door handles, which open your heart in fresh and wonderful ways to allow the Lord Jesus again to dwell in the depths of your heart. You're going to be looking at the pathways of prayer, worship, fasting, meditation, fellowship, and Bible study. And this week we are considering the pathway of prayer. And I believe that prayer begins and ends with Jesus in the heart. Prayer begins and ends with Jesus in the heart. Our text is John 13 and 14. Jesus says, I will do anything, whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. To pray in Jesus' name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? I believe to pray in Jesus' name means to pray with Jesus in the heart. And we're going to look at the right to pray in Jesus' name, the responsibility to pray in Jesus' name, and the results of prayer in Jesus' name. This is a good Presbyterian sermon. Three points. The right to pray in Jesus' name. Jesus says, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. He's extending to you, and he's extending to me the right to pray. Now, I want you to know that I struggle with prayer. Prayer is an amazing mystery to me. I do not understand how prayer works. The creator of the universe, who's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and who in an eternity past created and conceived this world to be completed in an eternity future, in which he's thought of you and I, and thought about all that there is, and every possibility and has his purpose and plans, why would he be interested in what I have to say? Why would he be interested in what you have to say? How long have you lived? 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 80 years, 90 years? What's that compared to eternity? And your brain is this big. How large is the mind of Christ? How could anything you say, how could anything you conceive of, How could you think of anything that needs to be changed in the world, make any difference, or make God want to respond? It doesn't make sense, quite frankly. It is not logical. And then on top of that, you can add to all of us our own personal sense of insignificance. I'm not so sure that I'm really all that significant. I'm not so sure that you ought to listen to me, much less God. Why should I ask God, and why should God listen to me? And so prayer draws on, and and all of us struggle with these issues in some way, shape, or form. So 
Um, one of the ways to deal with this, one of the classic ways in Reformed theology is to say, well, prayer is important because prayer changes us. And we pray, and, and, and when we pray, it's not so much things happen out there, but things happen inside us. Another way to deal with this is prayer means we learn to surrender to God's will. God's doing his thing, and when we pray, we learn to surrender to what he's doing. And, and those are, both of those things are true, absolutely. But the mystery of prayer and the clear testimony of Scripture is bigger than that. Prayer actually, in reality, changes things. There are things in this world that will happen if you ask God to act. And there are things in this world that are not going to happen if you don't ask God to act. Now, I don't get that. That's not logical. But it's true. And that's the testimony of Scripture. There's this incredible mystery about prayer. Now, how does this work? Well, the thing is, Jesus is the agent of prayer. Jesus is the object of prayer. And Jesus is the means of prayer. God listens to you because he listens to Jesus. And Jesus dwells in your heart. Let me say that again. God listens to you and God listens to me because he listens to Jesus, who is his son, who is the Lord of the universe. And wonder of wonders, Jesus, his son, dwells inside of you and dwells inside of me. And therefore, what you say and what I say become significant and important in Jesus Christ. And so this, this uh, right we have to pray is such an incredible gift that we don't understand, but it's so important. And my first point, the application of my first point, is this, claim your right as a VIP. Claim your right as a very important prayer. You've been given the right to pray in Jesus Christ, and you need to take it. More than taking the right, you have a responsibility to pray in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name means we have the responsibility to prayer. God shapes the world in response to our prayers. And to pray in Jesus' name means we participate in his mission. And to pray in Jesus' name means that we get to be an agent of his mission. The point is God exercises his will in the world by means of his son. And his son dwells in your heart. God exercises his will in the world by means of his son, and his son dwells in your heart. A number of years ago, one of the leaders of the charismatic movement of the late 60s and 70s was Derek Prince. Derek Prince wrote a book about 1973 or 74 entitled Shaping the World, Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. He's got it exactly right. That's a wonderful title, and it captures the heart of prayer. We can shape, in fact, we are responsible to shape the history of the world by means of our prayers. And he cites several examples. One of them is he's living in in Israel in 1948 when Israel is about to become a country. And he has the audacity to suggest that Israel actually did become a country in part because of the prayers that he and his wife prayed. I believe it. I believe it. My pastor, where I met the Lord, used to quote the book Praying Hyde a lot. Praying Hyde was a Welshman who lived in Wales who took prayer very seriously. And one of the stories he quoted was about the Battle of the Bulge during World War II when the Germans were making a pushback against the Allied advances. And there were a group of intercessors in Wales who felt that the Lord was calling them to pray for that battle. And they began prayer early in the evening and they prayed 
throughout the night. And they were in great labor, supporting in prayer the Allied armies as they were fighting the Nazis. And sometime early in the morning, three or four, there was just this sense of sigh and relief that swept through the room. And the intercessors looked up at one another and said, it's been won. And they went home. And the news the next day was about three or four in the morning, the battle turned around. Now, was it the soldiers who were out fighting that won the battle? Absolutely. But would they have won the battle without the prayer sort, prayer support of those people gathered in Wales? I don't point, I don't think they would have. I think it was the combination of the prayer prayed and the battles fought that won that victory. We shape, we participate in the unfolding of God's purpose and plan by means of prayer and wonder of wonders in the, in the mystery of God's providence and plan. What you think and what you think and feel and pray for is important and shapes the world. Um, there was a, a book a number of years ago by J.B. Phillips entitled Your God is Too Small. I think we could say our prayers are too small for the most part, in terms of understanding the privileges and responsibilities that the Lord has given to us. C.S. Lewis, in his third uh, science fiction trilogy, The Hideous Strength, um, it's, a, it's a fiction uh, book, but he, he really proposes something very fascinating. And that is that there are periods of history when evil seems to be unleashed in the world every several generations. And during those periods, the world teeters. And it is the responsibility of God's people to fight the battle in prayer and to drive back and to temper and restrain again the forces of evil. Now, I don't know about you, but I I think that there's a sense of the forces of darkness being unleashed in new ways and stalking this world in the present time that we are in. And I believe that the issue, again, is going to depend upon God's intercessors and those who hear God's call and hit their knees and begin to pray for this world. You have a responsibility to pray. In Jesus' name. You have a responsibility to pray. In Jesus' name. You have a responsibility pray in Jesus name and it will make a difference in what's going on in the world my own prayers right now include Sudan Darfur and Ethiopia the problem of human trafficking and the turning of young girls into prostitutes and slaves incurred they my prayers focus on the storms on Wall Street and down in Texas the problem of food production and prices in this world and energy the problem of the environment, the issues of the election. What prayers are you praying for the shaping of the world in Jesus' name? And then finally, I want to mention the results of prayer in Jesus' name. You already have gotten the point that prayer makes things happen in us in the world, I believe. And if you want to hear about the wonderful results of prayer, I encourage you to talk to Wally Boldock or Barry Carlin about their recent trips to Africa and what they've seen happen in terms of praying for people, in terms of healing, if you doubt the power of prayer to make a difference. I believe that there's a great spiritual emptiness in this day and time, both in the world and in the church, and some are so empty that hearts are beginning to wither.
And we need to pray to get filled up. When we pray in Jesus' name, Jesus indwells us and fills us. When we pray in Jesus' name, God is honored, his will is done, his kingdom comes, our needs are met, our sins are forgiven, and we're delivered from spiritual assaults. That's the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Prayer is the great challenge. Prayer is the great challenge and task. It's possible to pray empty prayers. It's possible to pray shallow prayers. And it's interesting to me, it's possible to start prayer meetings which run, run out of steam pretty quickly and fade away. Prayers become hard and laborious and boring. And people don't keep at it. I'm convinced that prayer begins and ends with Jesus in the heart. I have a friend, Phyllis LePeau, who has a heart problem. Uh, she's a, a campus minister in Chicago. And, and about once a year, I think it's called atrial defibrillation or something like that. I don't remember the title. But basically, her heart gets out of rhythm. And she has to go back in about once a year and have her heart shocked. Well, I have to suspect that there are some of God's people whose hearts are out of rhythm and need a shock to get back into the beating and the rhythm of the Lord. Heart disease is a great problem today as people's veins are filling up with cholesterol and high blood pressure is shrinking the blood vessels. Spiritually, I think we have a heart condition in which the pathways to our heart are being constricted and the flow of the spirit is drying up and the sense of Jesus in the heart is fading. Perhaps like you, one of the first prayers you prayed was to, like me, one of the first prayers you prayed was to invite Jesus into your heart. Given the spiritual challenges we face, perhaps the first pray we ought to, prayer we ought to pray every day in the morning before we get out of bed, daily, is to invite Jesus into our heart. Prayer won't survive by itself. It needs the rest of the pathways of meditation and Bible study and fellowship and Fasting and silence and solitude. But together these pathways create a flow of the spirit to the heart. So that Jesus dwells in here. And he's not outside knocking saying, you who, let me in. As we move into communion and as we move into healing stations, um, I'm going to invite you to be sure... Take a look at your heart and see if you can diagnose how well you're doing. And where is Jesus? And what voice are you hearing? I invite us now to come to the table of the Lord. I think that's the next step in the process of the service.